So I, am, I plan and commit to be a tireless advocate for mental health in Oklahoma. And I also am asking you guys, which many of you have already been doing a lot of this groundwork. I've, I've met many of you and talked to many of you along the way. We have to continue to link arms and we have to stand up for policies and different things that will change the culture and the face of mental health in Oklahoma. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we're going to go on location to the Tulsa World's Let's Talk Mental Health Forum, presented May 30th at the University of Tulsa. The panel included some of the foremost experts on mental health in Oklahoma. The University of Tulsa's president, Dr. Gerard Clancy, Terry White, who is the commissioner of the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services, and Dr. Martin Paulus, who's the scientific director and president of the Laureate Institute for Brain Research. Plus, the event featured two special guests, our own CEO, Mike Bros, and Oklahoma's First Lady, Sarah Stitt, who I personally knew wasn't a strong mental health advocate, but the story she shared about growing up with both parents affected by mental health was the highlight of the evening. She actually says that she wants to take our mental health system from a crisis mode to a preventative mode, which it was echoed by all of the panelists, that if we can just provide people access to quality mental health care when they need it, we can change and save lives. So without further ado, let's get to the panel. The mental health download starts now. So as most of you know, I'm sure, because I know many of the faces in this room and I'm happy to see so many friends here tonight, we've all been fighting the same issue, which is that brain health should be as important in Oklahoma as any other disease. And the fact is that for mental illness, as you heard earlier, it's one out of five people. But when you talk about diseases of the brain, we often have individuals who struggle with both mental illness and addiction. Those diseases often go hand in hand because it's the same organ in the body. So what that means is it's between 700 and 900,000 of our fellow Oklahomans, ourselves, our family, our friends, community leaders, members of our community of faith, men and women who've served our country, our children. 600,000 of those individuals struggle with untreated mental illness. Because when you look at this data, how many Oklahomans are able to access treatment for their brain disease? Of that 700 to 900,000, how many of you know? It's one out of every three. That means two out of every three Oklahomans who need that help are not able to access those services currently. And we are making significant gains in the state, but we have a long way to go. And we know that when we don't address mental illness and addiction, we see the breakup of families. We see increases in the number of children who are entering the foster care system. We know that we see loss of employment. We know we see homelessness. We know we see a host of other negative consequences, including the most common in Oklahoma, although we're making significant strides to change it. As I see my very good friend for many years, Tim Harris here, our former district attorney from Tulsa County. Most often people with untreated mental illness end up in the back of a police car, the inside of a jail cell, or the inside of a prison cell, instead of the inside of a medical facility. But we're making significant strides to change that. 
But one of the things I've always talked about, especially the last several years when I talk about mental illness, and we have to address this issue in the state of Oklahoma, is the link between trauma and mental illness and addiction. Because that link between trauma and mental illness and addiction is how one of the first things that we do to actually solve this problem. You may not be aware, but in 2018, Oklahoma was ranked near the bottom of some things as we're moving towards being a top 10 state. There are lots of ways that we can make a difference there. I'm gonna actually share some good data with you here in just a minute. As you know, when I talk, I lay out the problems and then I share some of the solutions and some of the strides. So hold on with me for the good data, but we first have to recognize where we're starting from. We're ranked 44th, 44th in the United States for childhood trauma, the number meaning Positive. It's not good to be 44th. In addition to being ranked 44th nationally for our child well-being, we know that when we look at what happens in terms of untreated trauma, we have a significant way to go. I don't know how many of you all realize as you talk about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. We've talked about that a lot. If you are unfamiliar with ACEs tonight, if you're new to that conversation tonight, please Google it. I don't even care if you Google it while I'm talking. You should wait till Dr. Clancy's talking now. <laughs> But adverse childhood experiences are childhood trauma. And one adverse childhood experience leads to 35% of those kids developing a mental health issue. One adverse childhood experience. And unfortunately, Oklahoma ranks near the top for the total number of adverse childhood experiences our kids experience. So when we combine that with stigma and lack of treatment and trauma, we see significant wounds. One of the things that we've also talked a lot about in the state the last couple years are the deaths of despair. Another thing that if you want to Google, I don't mind if you do it while Dr. Paulus is talking. <laughs> the deaths of despair are what's killing Oklahomans at higher rates than it ever has before. The deaths of despair are studies that have been coming out for the last three years from the Department of Economics of Harvard University, of Princeton University, and as I talk about that, you might wonder why the Department of Economics? Well, the Department of Economics, because what we're finding is that middle-aged Oklahomans, those who should be earning and positively affecting our economy, are dying at double the death rate that they were 10 years ago. Double the death rate. And dying for three reasons. Those three reasons, the deaths of despair, the trinity that make up those deaths of despair, are suicide, overdose, particularly prescription drug overdose and painkillers, and cirrhosis of the liver caused by alcohol consumption. Those three things have significantly increased our death rates, so much so that 388 Oklahomans died in 2017 from an opioid overdose, 640 Oklahomans died of chronic liver disease, cirrhosis of the liver caused by alcohol consumption, and 756 Oklahomans died by suicide all of those being a preventable cause of death. And when I'm in Tulsa, I have to, I have to recognize the fact that the Zero Family Foundation is here, that Gail Richards is here, that Courtney Knobloch and Bill Majors are here, because in Tulsa, we also have a significant issue with methamphetamine. We lost 306 Oklahomans in Tulsa, or 306 Oklahomans last year to methamphetamine overdose. It's a significant issue. And all these are preventable. So here's the good news as we talk about the state of mental health and substance abuse in our state. While we have huge gains to make, we're headed in the right direction. There's primarily one thing standing in our way, and that's all of us coming together to put the resources we need into these issues. Because unfortunately, if you're not aware, 
In 2017, the Mental Health Policy Organization released a report about per capita funding for mental health. And if you haven't seen this report, they release it every year. And every year we hover around the same place. While the rest of the nation, on average, spends $120 per person invested in mental health services, Oklahoma, historically, has spent $53 per person invested in mental health services. But here's the good news. Despite being at the bottom for funding and having a very narrow door and only letting one out of every three people in who needs help, despite that, we're ranked in the top in the top six, actually, according to the last NAMI report, for outcomes for people who do get into the treatment system. So if you can get in our narrow door in Oklahoma, because of all the providers that are in the room, I see so many of you in the room, our partners, our frontline, our staff, our law enforcement who are there trying to get people to treatment, if you can get in, we have good outcomes. And so much so that we were actually recently ranked for 2018 27th in the nation for our overall mental health ranking. So while we're at the bottom for funding, we're actually in the middle of the pack for our overall ranking, it's because our outcomes are so high. So to be a top 10 state, and I'm really pleased to share with you that the legislature increased funding for mental health and substance abuse services this year. The governor, our new governor, called for it in the state of the state by investing in mental health and substance abuse services to divert people from the criminal justice system. The legislature followed and made those investments and actually added to them. Senator Haste, I see you here. Thank you so much in your first year for working so hard along with the governor for mental health and substance abuse. We made another great step this year, and that's how we're going to get to a top 10 state. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Uh, uh, Dr. Martin Paulus, I'm tickled to have you here, but also intimidated, uh, because while I can talk uh, public policy with, with our other two panelists uh, all night long, the, the pure science uh, is, is a little beyond my, my normal kin. But I, I've heard you talk, uh, you've you come to our editorial board and, and, and spoken to the, the work of the Laureate Institute for, uh, for uh, Brain Research. And it's, it's just fascinating. So we couldn't, have, we couldn't have this event without you here tonight, and we're so glad you could be here. Uh, Dr. Paulus is the president and scientific director of the Laureate Institute of, of Brain Research. He's written more than 300 papers, uh, scientific papers, uh, peer-reviewed, important stuff. He's uh, been under continuous federal funding for, for, for his work for uh, decades. Uh, he, he's doing incredibly important work, and I'm going to let you describe what, uh, what's going on. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me here. I'm very excited uh, to be on this uh, panel, and, and it's uh, really, you know, I was, I was just reflecting on the numbers that uh, uh, Kushan just uh, told us, and one of the things that is actually, just because it's in my interest, uh, it's important to know, uh, she mentioned the, the importance of methamphetamine. It turns out that over the last three, uh, over the last five years, uh, the mortality related to methamphetamine has tripled. Um, we, we are seeing a resurgence of methamphetamine. But let me just tell you a little bit about what sort of my, what, what I'm trying to contribute and what what my background is, and, and a little bit about the institute because I think it's a it is a unique place. The Lloyd Institute for Brain Research was uh, founded um, by the support of the Warren uh, Family Foundation. Um, about 10 years ago, we will, we will be celebrating our 10th anniversary in, uh, in the fall. 
Uh, I've been in uh, Tulsa for the last five years, um, and uh, before that I was at the University of California in San Diego. Um, the reason why I came here is because um, I was very much motivated by the fact that we want to bring science to uh, make a difference in treatment. I, I was a VA physician for over 20 years. Um, I treated patients uh, on a weekly basis. I've had many patients for decades. And I know how difficult it is uh, to be a provider and how the struggles and how far we still have to go. Um, but I think what, uh, what, we're, what we're trying to do at uh, the Laurier uh, Institute is use basic uh, uh, brain science to really develop novel uh, treatments on uh, the one hand, but also to uh, come up with what I always call the, the EKG for the psychiatrist, uh, because we need objective markers of the disease, not just of the disease, we need objective markers for the risk of the disease. Uh, we need to know how long we need to treat people. You know, you've just heard that the, 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 there will always be economic limitations as to what we can provide, and there, was, there will always be bottlenecks. So in some sense, what we need to figure out, what are, the, what are the rational decisions we can make for how long to treat somebody? Um, when is somebody uh, cured? When is somebody uh, stable enough to be um, uh, moved on to a lower level of care? Many of these decisions are made on a day-by-day -day basis, and unfortunately, little, very few of these decisions are based on really hard brain science. And that's not uh, because for lack of trying. It's a very difficult problem. Trying to crack that nut is probably one of the most difficult problems in, in, the, in the medical world. So we're trying to do this. We have a group of um, eight scientists uh, that have uh, research groups that look, are looking at different, um, uh, different approaches. Uh, I've always been interested in substance use. I've been funded by the National Student Drug Abuse for uh, almost three decades now. Uh, my particular interest is in methamphetamine, but we have studies on uh, depression. We have studies on anxiety. Uh, we are looking into um, uh, into the developing diseases in uh, in adolescents. We're part of the Adolescent uh, Brain Cognitive Development Study, the ABCD study, which is the largest uh, multi-center study ever conducted by the National Institute of Health. We have over 740 families who participated and who will participate. In, uh, in the Tulsa community over the next 10 years. So, uh, and, and we've also worked very closely with, uh, uh, with Dr. Clancy and the University of Tulsa. We've developed a program um, that is starting to look at how can we improve resilience in uh, students that are entering college because we now know uh, that uh, there is uh, one in three students during the first year of college will have significant problems with anxiety and depression. And uh, that is the number one reason why kids drop out of college these days. So we're trying to develop ways of um, uh, combating that before the problem really uh, gets bad. We have some empirical data that, is, uh, that shows that the program that we've developed uh, is actually working, that we have uh, less depression at the end of the uh, semester. And what we're hoping to do now is we're hoping to uh, find ways of implementing this program uh, much more broadly. And with that, we're also trying to find uh, ways of how, do, how does the brain change as a, as a consequence of that treatment. Uh, we've, over the last five years, we've conducted uh, a study called the Tulsa 1000, and we've recruited from the community 1,000 individuals um, with various problems, including mood and anxiety, uh, including eating disorder problems, and also 
uh, problems with addiction. The goal of that study is really to use uh, the data that we've collected over the last five years to begin to see are there, uh, are there objective markers? Can we use brain imaging? Can we use blood tests? I'm very excited about a new development that we've actually just recently entered into. Uh, we, we, we are now able to uh, isolate uh, little uh, uh, bubbles that are uh, basically um, floating in the bloodstream that actually come from the brain. And what's exciting about that, within those bubbles um, are molecules that actually tell us something about what's going on in the brain. The reason why that is so exciting is because it's the first time that we can actually have a look into the brain without having to go into the brain. So one of the things we're looking at is can we use that as a diagnostic tool? Can we use that as a tool um, to see how ill somebody is. So that's that's very exciting developments. And, and again, um, I'm very passionate about, uh, I'm often the first time, first person to come into the institute and the last one to leave. Because for me, uh, this is very, very personal and it's, it's, in, in, it's very important that we're making progress that you as the consumer or as, the, as a provider can really benefit from. Thank you, Dr. Paul. So, uh, Dr. Jerry Clancy, first of all, thank you for hosting us here tonight. You've been very generous with the uh, uh, University of Tulsa's uh, resources in this room. And I'll admit to you that if we were meeting tonight in one of those other institutions that has the word state in, in their name, or public library, or on group of the Tulsa world, I'd still want you on this panel. <laughs> because you've come at this topic from so many different uh, uh, directions. You're, the, you're practicing, practicing, like I have been your entire professional career. Uh, you're, you were fairly recently the, uh, uh, the uh, chairman of the, of the Greater Tulsa Chamber of Commerce, so you, you've seen, you, you've viewed this issue from the, from the business perspective. You've led uh, United Way campaigns, uh, so you, you understand it from the, uh, from the non-profit uh, perspective. And uh, you're, probably best known in, in this on this topic for shepherding the, the zero-funded uh, uh, census of, 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 of mental health issues in Tulsa. And I just, please give us, uh, first of all, you're welcome to say anything you want. My microphone. But tell us more about, about what we now know specifically about the city of Tulsa and, and, and mental health issues. Well, and I'm going to um, answer that, but I'm going to bridge with what uh, Martin talked about as well. First of all, just everyone here should feel very encouraged about being in Tulsa. Um, with what the Laureate Institute for Brain Research is doing, it is extraordinary. I brought my old uh, textbook from medical school, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the third edition. This was put out in 1980. This, and my dad helped write this. And, if you've not seen this book, this book was the first time that all the psychiatrists decided to agree on language and on diagnostic uh, categories or, or this set of symptoms we're going to call schizophrenia, this set of symptoms we're going to call bipolar disorder, this set of symptoms we're going to call obsessive compulsive disorder. Before that, it was just a free-for-all. Once we had at least groups of symptoms, then we could be able to start pointing in the direction of, okay, this set of symptoms responds to this treatment, and so we now have treatment pathways. But before that, what's wonderful about what Martin is doing is he's actually putting real science to this. The lowest level of scientific 
validated research is expert opinion. And it really is. That's the lowest. The rest of the, you go up a pyramid to randomized, controlled, long-term studies. And what Mark is doing is looking for real biologic markers, brain imaging markers, neuropsych testing that actually, hopefully, will be able to just throw this book out. Because um, I've seen probably 2,000 people with schizophrenia. And I know that that's more than one illness. It's a whole bunch of different illnesses. Some, some individuals with schizophrenia have brain structural problems, some people do not. And they're, they're, but we still call it all schizophrenia. We just lump it under, under one big umbrella. So what, what, what I'm excited about is 10 years from now, um, what Tulsa is doing leading the way nationally for this. It's really, really impressive. Um, And, and just a side story, when I was in medical school, um, uh, I was planning to be a cardiologist. I'd done a whole bunch of research for seven years in, in a cardiology lab. And then I, I was on the psychiatry inpatient unit and I saw how helpful treatment can, can, you can take someone who is unable to care for themselves entirely. They would die without care. And within two weeks, you can turn them around with the work of a team. It was extraordinary. So I went to my cardiology professor who was president of the American Heart Association at that time and he said, I said, I'm going to go into psychiatry instead of cardiology. And you know what he said to me? What a waste. <laughs> he did. He did. It, that was that, it was that attitude around psychiatry. So I've been driven forever to be able to show him that this, this, this is not a waste. Um, in in uh, 2005, we, we came up with the startling statistic that there's a 14-year difference in life expectancy between North and South Tulsa, and that number is now pretty well known across this town. I actually pulled up my, my freshmen, I have 140 freshmen in my class, and I said, how many of you know the life expectancy difference in Tulsa? And about 50% of that class knew that there was a 14-year difference in life expectancy. Well, this city came together and did, did extraordinary things over the next 10 years, and that 14-year difference in life expectancy was reduced by three years in 2015. So a, a three-year improvement in life expectancy in North Tulsa, where the rest of the town did not improve. Um, what, what that showed me was that you can take a huge, gnarly, ugly problem, like a 14-year difference in life expectancy, and people come together you can make, you can put a big dent in that. So Bill Major and Courtney Knobloch at the Ann Henry Zero Foundation came to me in 2015 and said, um, we'd like to do an in-depth study on mental illness and substance abuse. What is the state of the city as far as that? And frankly, when we started into that study, we hoped there would be some numbers that get some attention to motivate people like that 14-year difference in life expectancy. We teamed up with a whole bunch of uh, Tulsa area leaders. Terry uh, was on the group, uh, Mike Rose was on the group, um, uh, physicians from across town, OU and OSU together. Um, and we did come up with that startling number, that if you have a chronic severe mental illness in Tulsa County, your life expectancy is 27 years shorter than those without. It's an incredible, incredible number, incredible number. Um, that, that the highest cause of death among those individuals was cardiovascular disease. The mental illness that they have gets in the way of them taking care of themselves and making the right decisions and accessing primary care for cardiovascular disease. But it was also driven by um, some of the numbers that Terry talked about, about overdose and suicide. In Tulsa County right now, we have 12 homicides per 100,000 per year. We have 19 suicides per 100,000 in Tulsa per year. And we have 19 overdoses per 100,000.
$50,000 per year. So we have a 50% higher rate of suicide and overdose in Tulsa County than we do overdoses. I remember the first time I told Wayne this, he just said, that can't be right. You went back and forth, back and forth, but it was true. It was really, really true. There were some other startling numbers as well. As, as Terry pointed out, um, that suicide rate um, was really strong in the 45 to 55 year old male group. That's where it's the strongest. But it was now starting to show up in children as well. When I went to medical school, it was unheard of of children and adolescents being suicidal. But now it's the second leading cause of death for uh, uh, children and uh, teenagers. Accidents is first, suicide is second. It's just, just terrible. One of the numbers that startled us the most came from Tulsa Public Schools and, and Dr. Ebony Johnson. We were, we were having a conversation and it, it just kind of blurted out of her mouth. She said, oh, you need to know that between K through, K through eighth grade in Tulsa Public Schools, we get a suicide note every day in Tulsa Public Schools. So these numbers were just starting, just starting. What, what, and, and if you ask me the question later on, is the reason for hope? Um, it is. We released that report um, in 2017, and the amount of progress that has been made in just a year and a half is extraordinary, extraordinary as far as things that are gonna pay off and make a difference and actually put a dent in that number. Thank you. Take off from uh, from what uh, Dr. Clancy just told us about uh, the startling numbers of, of, of youth suicide issues. I, I remember we first met. Uh, you were a, a member of a, a task force that the state had put together after one of the horrible school shootings. I've forgotten which one. Uh, and, and there was a lot of talk about building better doors and stronger windows and better locks at the school. And at some point, someone turned around and said, you got anything to say, Commissioner? And, 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 and you let loose on them about all these programs that, uh, that you had uh, written and ready to go, just waiting for funding uh, to deal with not just uh, children, but the relatively unusual case of, of a child who acts out uh, homicidally, but kids who hurt themselves. Which, which you pointed out was a, was a much steeper uh, issue for, for Oklahoma. Uh, so what have you got? Tell, tell us sure. tonight, what, what are we, what could we be doing to, to, to deal with, with mental health issues that, that are storming the lives of our children? So talking about children's mental health, there's several things that I think are important for you to know if you don't already know. Those of you that have heard me speak probably are aware. The pro programs that we promote at the department are evidence-based programs. Every resource, every dime, every penny to us is precious, and so we stretch our dollars as far as possible to serve as many Oklahomans as possible with evidence-based services where we know that there is a reason to believe in the outcomes, not programs that, that we just made up. And I think that's important for you all to know as we talk about some of those examples. So on that particular uh, school safety commission, one of the things we immediately began talking about was a program called Mental Health First Aid. You might remember Mental Health First Aid was developed in Australia, but Oklahoma was the third state in the United States to begin implementing Mental Health First Aid, an international evidence-based practice. Just like you teach basic first aid to school personnel and other folks in our community about how to intervene with basic first aid skills if you were to come upon someone who was injured, what are basic mental health first aid skills? How do you recognize signs and symptoms early, long before there's a crisis? And that was such an important part of the discussion as it related to school safety. 
Because it's not just about what do you do at the crisis moment, it's how do you prevent your school from experiencing a crisis in the first place? And recognizing risks for untreated <laughs> mental health issues and how to reach out to folks becomes a really important piece. So I'm proud to tell you we have trained over 3,000 school personnel in the last 18 months, not just in mental health first aid, but a host of other issues. We have a new deep and wide partnership that if anyone's interested in talking about later, I'm happy to talk about with Oklahoma City Public Schools. It's the first time in our state's history and maybe the history of any state that we've found so far where a school system as large as Oklahoma City Public School System and the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services have partnered together to figure out how to address mental health and substance abuse issues. We have great partnerships with all of our, I should say all, that's not true. Not every school wants to address mental health. You all may not be aware of that. We have opportunities to partner with every school district in our state and Senator Haste actually ran a bill this year to encourage, not encourage, but to require the Department of Education and the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services to continue to work with schools, really to help encourage schools to join that conversation because we welcome every school to the table. We have districts who still believe they don't have mental health issues going on in their school district, believe it or not. Now Tulsa Public Schools isn't one of them. We're very lucky in Tulsa that this is an ongoing discussion and has been for years, but there are evidence-based trainings like mental health first aid. There are also some basic training we need to do for parents. Because one of the things I think sometimes, and I'm a mom of a nine and a half year old, and so I still recognize the important influence that I have on my child. But a lot of times when I talk to parents, particularly of teenagers and young adults, they believe they don't have influence on their child, or it feels like they don't have influence on their child. And that's actually not true. The data is very clear, the single biggest influence on your child, particularly as it relates to substance abuse, which is often a self-medicating behavior for untreated mental illness, is what your parents will think and the conversations you have with your parents. So it's also about how we reach out to families with basic information. And it's not just for our kids. Because as Dr. Clancy said, the second highest cause of death for our kids, but actually our young adults, it's 10 to 34 year olds in the state of Oklahoma, 10 to 34. The second leading cause of death is suicide. So there are lots of programs that we actually are able to provide for free because we are really good grant writers. Being poor often makes you desperate and we are really, really good. We actually, the last two years, we've run 100% of every competitive grant we've applied for, which is really an unheard of rate. I'm not saying it's a, that we have enough resources, but we have a lot that we can offer to school districts, to parents, to communities, whether it's through mental health first aid, question, persuade, refer, which is an evidence-based suicide intervention program. 211, remember the statewide suicide hotline, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I say that to you just in case at 10.30 the night you wanna have a conversation and I don't think anyone will still be sitting here with me, although I'll stay if anyone wants to keep talking about this until 10.30 the night. There are places that you can reach out, but it's not just among our kids. Because these issues go untreated for so long, we have extremely high rates in the Native American community, on both with, on, in, on tribal land and within our communities, but tribal and nation members, we have very high rates of suicide. We unfortunately have the distinction in Oklahoma, in 2018 a report was released, we have the highest suicide rate for young veterans in the United States here in Oklahoma. The part we can be proud of is we have the highest per capita rate of men and women who served our country right here in Oklahoma. We don't have enough resources and why we 
really, and I, we, I've reached out and we've reached a new level of partnership with the National Guard and the VA over that statistic the last few years. Dr. Paul, you've got an interesting entree on this because one of the studies going on at LIBOR is, is literally using is technology to literally look at the brains of, of adolescents and, and, and tracking how the brain changes as, as the child matures. But tell us more about what you're learning there. Yeah, so we, I mentioned briefly, so we're part of the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Studies, ABCD is the acronym, and it's a multi-site study, there are 21 sites, we're actually the only site in the middle of the country, most of the sites are either on the one coast or the other coast. But the goal of this study is to really have a representative sample that we can of, of youngsters, nine, 10 year olds, that we'll follow over the next 10 years and see what happens to their brains as they're going through various developmental stages. Um, and as you can imagine, anybody who has uh, kids, uh, there's lots of things that are happening between the ages nine and 10, 19 and 20. And um, so we've been particularly interested in screen media activity. This is something that uh, a lot of parents are concerned about. Um, you may have heard that the WHO has uh, issued a recommendation a month ago now that suggests to minimize screen media activity or to essentially eliminate screen media activity in kids age five and younger. What's interesting about this, there's almost no empirical evidence um, for it, that it's either good or bad for uh, kids. So part of what we're trying to do is really establish the evidence base for it. Is, is screen media activity um, leading to increased uh, uh, rates of depression, leading to increased rates of uh, suicide. Um, we know that uh, in, terms of, in terms of recreational activity, screen media activity is by far the most uh, important activity for uh, kids age, um, in, the, in teenage years. So we've done uh, some initial analyses and um, again, what we're finding is to some degree surprising. These are, again, these are kids that are age 9, 10 at this pre-pubertal. Um, at this stage, the, uh, the kids that actually engage in more social media, which is mostly texting and messaging, actually, uh, we found, actually do a little bit better. They have uh, less family conflict, they're actually more physically active, um, and uh, they uh, actually perform slightly better on several cognitive tests. But uh, obviously it's very preliminary. This will be a study that will be happening over the next uh, uh, 10 years and will be getting really uh, very, very uh, important insights into how the brain develops and what that actually means for identifying uh, kids that are at risk. I mean, the, the numbers are really staggering. We talked, uh, Commissioner White talked about the, uh, the increase in suicide uh, rate among uh, in, in that age group. It is dramatic over the last 10 years uh, nationwide uh, suicides uh, have gone on, uh, got, gone up by almost fifty percent in that age group. So this is a this is a very very acute problem. Um, so part of what we're trying to do here in, in, in Tulsa is also bring in, um, and this is something that was also mentioned before, the particular makeup of the community. We have the highest Native American rates in uh, in. in in our particular group. Uh, we are looking for uh, reaching out to the uh, Native American tribes to find ways of better understanding why it is that, uh, uh, that the kids uh, with a Native history are at such higher risk for uh, problems with suicide, with alcohol and substances. 
um, those are things that we are very, very keenly um, interested in and again want to reach out to the community. Uh, where do you get your your subjects? Where do you get the people you're uh, so, so this was this was actually, and I, I want to thank for anybody in the room who is a teacher or who is a part of the uh, Tulsa Public School System, the Union uh, School System, Jake's. Uh, we've worked with the schools. We've worked with the school superintendent because the uh, the the goal for the study was really to get a representative sample, meaning we reached out to every uh, kid. We, uh, we even have homeschool kids, but we reached out mostly through, uh, through the schools to get a very representative sample of the community. I think we were very successful in doing so. I, mean, I would be remiss if I didn't add one piece, because a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight is it can be pretty heavy, right? We have some pretty staggering statistics in Oklahoma, but there are great things happening. We dropped from seventh in the highest in the nation in the rate of suicide to down to 16th in the last study. We are going the right direction. There are some great things happening, one of which was an incredible partnership that we were able to secure uh, funding for with the Chickasaw Nation, where the Chickasaw Nation took a program called Zero Suicide that we had taken to them and took the Zero Suicide Initiative throughout their entire healthcare system. Every, not their behavioral health system, but their entire health care system where they train health care workers in how to screen, basic screening for someone <coughs> who may be thinking about suicide. And that becomes really important because the vast majority of people who die by suicide have seen a medical professional within the last 30 days. That one of the stories they share, if you haven't heard about it, and I don't know if it's been reported on, so it might be a great story for someone to report on, <laughs> was a woman who was in the, Ch the Chickasaw Nation's dental office, and the dentist had, the dental and the, their dentist and the staff had been trained, and they did the basic screening, and they realized that this woman planned to die in the next 48 hours, and they were able to save her life, and that's just one of many stories that they can tell even better than I can. But there are good things happening. There is hope, and there are evidence-based programs. Thank you. So, Dr. Clancy, let's take a slight turn here. You, you told me an anecdote one time about, uh, about your, your experience as, as a well-known clinician. That, that is, routinely on weekends, you would get calls from friends, policymakers, names that you would recognize from the daily newspaper because some member of their family was having a, a, a crisis moment and they just wanted a place for them to go. Okay. Tell me about that. It is. It, 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 if you think about um, the percent of population with mental illness, uh, chronic severe mental illness is about 79%, um, and then any mental illness over a lifetime can be as high as 30% of the population. So there's, there's, there's need out there for services. And um, Oklahoma has always been behind in number of doctors, and number of psychiatrists, and number of child psychiatrists, um, and we've been way behind. One of the findings in the Zero Mental Health Study was how far behind we were as far as availability of beds for everybody. Um, Medicaid, Medicare, insured, uninsured, just we were behind on number of beds as well. And it, it comes through to me um, pretty routinely starting on Friday afternoons, um, somebody calls, with a very serious family situation and somebody needs to be in the hospital and they've tried, they've tried everything and they can't get in and so they're asking me, can I, can I use a back door? Can I call somebody and see if I can get a bed? And um, 
Um, Dr. Andrea Gleason is, is in the audience tonight. She heads OU Physicians and the group of psychiatrists. I call her all the time. I said, I got something I need to get in right now. And I, I mean, I, I'm about 50 favors behind right now. <laughs> um, but, but we work. But um, it is not uncommon for in town for someone to call up a psychiatrist's office and say, could I have an appointment? I'm a new patient. And they, they will say, my practice is full. I can only take care of who I've got right now. I can't add more to that. So that comes true to me on Friday nights when, when somebody says, I, I, I really think my loved one needs to be in the hospital. And I start calling around. And um, oftentimes what I get is, okay, if they can hold on, so it's Friday night, if they can hold on until Sunday evening at six o'clock, a bed will open. It is, it is that tight sometimes as far as beds. Um, all, our, our hospitals in town right now um, are running on average, just, just St. John, St. Francis, and Hillcrest are running at about 95% occupancy all the time. But our psychiatric facilities are running close to 100% occupancy all the time. The, uh, is there a back door? <laughs> do, 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 do. I'm usually pretty much a, a pit bull on this stuff, and yeah, I, I, I don't give up. The, 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 the issue of uh, closed psychiatric practice, is that an issue of, of insufficient physician manpower training, or is it a, a insufficient funding for psychiatric services, or both? This is a chicken and egg issue. They, they go hand in hand, very, very much so. Um, so I said, you know, 8 to 9% of the population will have one of the more chronic, severe mental illnesses, and 20 to 30% of the population sometime in their lifetime will have a mental illness. Um, average number of students going into psychiatry in a medical school class is usually two to three percent, and so, so just there's just not enough um, going out there. Um, it's getting better. Is that because the cardiology professor is? There is, there is. I mean, what that, there, there is, but it's a lot better than it used to be. I mean, it, there used to be a real um, looking down on psychiatrists as not real doctors. And um, that's, it's getting a lot better. Martin's work really, really helps, actually, being able to show this is real brain disease, this is real illness, um, and, and we have serious, serious treatment protocols and such. Um, but but the, the, as Terry mentions, the system is underfunded always. And so um, orthopedics, cardiology, that, there's a lot more money in that system than there is in the mental health system. And, um, it, it just, you know, sometime in 1910, somebody decided that this brain disease called Parkinson's disease is going to go with the neurologist and we're going to pay them a lot more than this brain disease, which is schizophrenia, and we're going to pay those, those are psychiatrists, and we're going to have a different pot of money and it will be a smaller pot of money. All right. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're honored to have uh, Sarah Spitt with us tonight, the first lady of Oklahoma. Uh, You made uh, mental health issues one of your principal uh, public policy issues that you talk about when you go around the state. Tell us why and, and what is it you'd like to do. Thank you very much for having me tonight. And thank you, three. I just was taking rapid notes. I feel very underqualified being in this room, looking around and seeing a lot of experts in this room that I've run across over the last couple of years. Um, but I will tell you, when my husband decided to run for governor, immediately, almost, people began to ask me and say, well, you better figure out what you're going to champion. What is your platform going to be? And immediately I knew that it would be mental health. I did not share that right away. 
Um, and part of that is because of something that I would like to combat, which is the stigma of mental health. And I do believe we're rounding the corner in that nationally, but in Oklahoma, there still is a stigma. But as I began to very timidly at first share why this was going to be something that I was willing to put myself and my family out there because I wanted to see a difference made in the lives of Oklahomans that struggle with mental health issues and families that struggle with mental health issues. I kid you not, not one time where I spoke, and I didn't speak about it every time, but um, many of the times I would end up sharing that that was the thing people, a question would be asked, what are, what are you, what's close to your heart? What are you excited about being able to make a difference on? And as I share that, every single time, at least one person would pull me to the side of the room and say, thank you. I am either a member of that community or my brother, my sister, my daughter, my father, we have struggled for years, or my son committed suicide, or my father committed suicide. And that began to just solidify in my heart what I knew immediately needed to be done and why I felt like it was a great reason that I was being uh, pulled into this position. As a child, um, both my parents had severe, have and had severe mental illness. And so my mother, it started from a um, childhood full with terrible abuse and gave her a very severe personality and um, mental health disorder, which then became substance abuse and, and just snowballed in her life. And my dad um, had a mental illness as a teenager and was treated quite successfully at the time. Um, by the methods that they used at that time, but it continued to haunt him all the days that I was, um, that when I was growing up, and then now, the last five years, has had just a severe um, mental health crisis in his life. And so I have walked, I have watched as a child, I didn't know any different. I thought everybody's family operated the way I did. Um, and then I look, I had three siblings, there were four children in our family, and my sister recently said to me, it's a miracle we weren't part of the foster care system, looking back on it, knowing what we know now. And I'm very thankful that, that we it did not come to that because we had a community around us that was able to give us some sense of stability and give my dad the ability to um, try to parent um, with what he had. But over the years, I have walked through watching your parents and not being able to get help. And as I became an adult and, and um, was on my own, I moved from being that in-home caretaker for my parents to out of home and still trying to kind of hover and make sure things were do being done properly. However, um, it's been the last five years that I've walked very, very closely um, with my father. And I was that person. I did not call you Dr. Planty, but I probably would have if I would have had your number. Because I was not in the emergency rooms overnight. Um, I have waited, I have called everybody I've known, I have called doctors and said, please, please um, help me. And so I know whether you have means or not, it, it is a crisis. And we're in a crisis nationally and in Oklahoma, quite frankly. So I knew that this was something that I wanted to lend my position, my voice, and everything I could to making a difference. And um, a little story that I've told several times, so several of you may have heard it, I was in um, a court-appointed appointment with my father, packed into a room that should hold about 35, and there was probably 100 people waiting to get there 10 minutes with um, this doctor. And I'm sitting, crammed in, I have a couple of my kids with me because I didn't have another option, and I'm standing near 
um, the front desk. And so this woman comes in with this child, not, not much older than a couple of mine that I had, in tow, disheveled, and she begins to try to see about their appointment. And the questions that are being asked from the front office is, you know, questions that I would know about my children, birth dates and um, insurance and those things. And I quite quickly realized this woman is probably an emergency caregiver or a social worker that has taken this little girl um, to her doctor's appointment. And as I sat there and I looked around that room and knowing the time and effort and advocating I had been doing for my family and looking at this little five-year-old little girl and thinking, oh my goodness, what has she been through to get to this point and will she ever get out? And it struck me, this was multiple years ago before Kevin was even thinking of running for governor. And in that moment, I thought, oh my goodness, what are we doing? We have to do something to make a difference. We have to start, as um, Commissioner White said, thinking about things like ACEs early on and treating these children before they are in crisis mode. So I, am, I plan and commit to be a tireless advocate for mental health in Oklahoma. And I also am asking you guys, which many of you have already been doing a lot of this groundwork. I've, I've met many of you and talked to many of you along the way. We have to continue to link arms and we have to stand up for policies and different things that will change the culture in the face of mental health in Oklahoma. Because we can be in crisis mode, we have been. We have been operating and as Commissioner White said, we are seeing some great results out of the things that we are doing because we are being forced to find these decisions. But it is my goal to be able to begin to switch from crisis mode to preventative mode. And with the experts that we are very blessed to have in Oklahoma and the amazing foundations doing amazing work that many states do not have, we can get there. And so I'm very excited when I hear about forums such as this because this is raising the community awareness. This is also letting people know that you aren't alone and this is not a silent issue as it used to be when i was a little girl we weren't allowed to talk about it because the stigma that my family was afraid to face was too much to bear and so it is becoming mental health is just not someone that is diagnosed with schizophrenia it's a whole range of of things that we are hearing about um, as we learned about the brain and we learn more and more every year but as we become more informed and more knowledgeable we can get ahead of the curve. We can start to make decisions that are preventative to help our children in their daily lives to have a successful future and have a healthy future. And we can train parents and give them the tools to help their children and help themselves in their own lives have a successful opportunity at life. So thank you very much for everyone in this room that is doing tirelessly the work that many of you I know have been working for years underappreciated and I'm excited about what is going to have take place in the future with all of us standing together to make a difference in mental health in Oklahoma. Thank you for sharing that, honestly. And, and thank you for your, your advocacy for an incredibly important issue. Speaking of advocacy, Mike. Kenneth. Mike, Mike Rose. We created uh, what we used to know as the Mental Health Association of Tulsa. Uh, wasn't important enough, so now he's the Mental Health Association of Oklahoma. Uh, so, first of all, two questions, Mike. Sure. Tell us about your group. What, what, what do you do? You vote your both on the advocacy end and uh, on the uh, on the programmatic end. But then, 
you know, we've got 200 people in the room here who, who feel very strongly about this issue. What, what can an ordinary citizen do to, to, to get the word out there that we need to do more about mental health? Sure. Uh, you know, we, Mental Health Association, now we are Mental Health Association Oklahoma, and it's really uh, been an amazing journey. We had a lot of people question, <laughs> Mental Health Association Tulsa, we got enough problems right here, why don't we stay focused right here? And we are very focused on here, but there's really advantages. We are, we are Oklahomans, and we're all in this together and across this state, and to be able to partner up with other people. Um, I know it's hard for Tulsans to sometimes accept this, there's some fabulous work going on in the Oklahoma City metro area around NLL. Right, Terry? Yeah, and we can learn from each other. And we got ideas going back and forth. I just came flying over here from uh, Oklahoma City, and the last day, the ship, kind of the close down of the a recovery program for the Oklahoma City bombing project, helping people in their recovery. And finally, that is, is almost, that process is complete. Those dollars have been expended, what have you. So we, as Mental Health Association Oklahoma, are really trying to partner. And, you know, think about it. Look at, in this audience. It's a beautiful May night, and there's a lot of things we can be talking about and doing things and going out to eat and being with our families, what have you. But here we all are because we care so much about this. I tell this all the time. I have never in my entire career of 38 years have seen more people talking about this topic, being not afraid to use the term mental health, to be able to use the term mental illness, to be able to use the term substance abuse, to talk about that we're losing too many of our loved ones to suicide. We've got to do something about that. Look at this, and then here is our first lady drives here, gets up, shares, transparent, and giving us all, all of us should have been encouraged by her comments to say she can talk about it and be honest about it, we can too. So, now, Wayne's question, what can we do? now? I know Terry referenced, we do have, oh wait a minute, before I do that, I want to talk about this as a part of that. People across, we used to be real siloed, uh, we, how many mental health professionals are in the audience, raise your hands? A lot of us, okay. How many people here are in law enforcement, raise your hands? There we go. Shelly, where's Shelly? She gets to step out, oh there she is back there. I want to introduce to you Shelly's Captain Shelley Cyber, former mental health professional. Now she is over the mental health programs for Tulsa Police Department. <laughs> uh, we have talked about. I was in a meeting the other day. It was with Terry's number two, Terry Slatton Hodges, uh, Corbin Brewster, uh, public head of the public defender's office, uh, Steve Kunzweiler, the Tulsa County District Attorney. Um, uh, Dr. Jason Beeman was at the table, uh, Turnkey, who does the health and mental health care in our, in our Tulsa jail, um, ourselves, we're all there, uh, Sheriff Regalado was there, 
all, look at, we were, what were we talking about? We are talking about how do we keep people, nonviolent offenders, out of the jails, out of the prisons, into treatment, and we're all trying to work with our heads together, trying to figure out all the ins and the outs of what happens, how we do that. Is that been happening all my career? No, but it's happening now. Now is our moment as Oklahoma. Now, again, a lot of numbers you've heard, I want to say. So another way of looking at the suicide rate. So again, how many people die in this country every year by homicide on average? About 18,000. How many people die by suicide in this country every year average? How many? About 46,000. Almost three times as many. We also like to say that about, on average, 123 people die in this country on average every day from suicide. That is equivalent to a 727 crashing every day for a year. Now, if that happened at day three, we would all be going, what in the world is going on here? We got to do something about it. So now, again, how many elected officials are in this audience? All right, two, three. All right, very good. Let's give them a hand as we're going to need their help. The last thing I'm going to say, Wayne, is that we're in bad habits of going down to the coffee shop and talking about hey, how awful it is. Let's, right after we talk about how awful it is, Let's ring up some of our state reps and our state senators and say, you know what? I was at that forum last night. Uh, we need your help and support, and we want you to support increased funding for mental health because we know how to invest in business. Let's invest in the business of health and mental health, okay? And by the way, let me say, nobody who said this, I haven't heard it yet. Can I say Medicaid expansion? Let's do it for us. Yeah. Be transparent. I'll, I'll concede that I am a member of the board of directors of, of the League of Women Voters of Metropolitan Tulsa. You have a table at the back. But if you want to make a personal difference about mental health, the first thing you can do is make sure that you're registered to vote. Make sure that you communicate to your elected officials what uh, uh, what uh, what you think about, what, how, how how you prioritize uh, mental health. And, uh, and 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 keep the lines of communications open. The uh, the the League of Women Voters of Oklahoma has chosen as a topic of study this year health, including mental health. Uh, you're, we invite all of you to, to join us in that conversation. The, 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 uh, Karen at the at our table can can tell you more about that. She can also register you to vote if you uh, shame on you. Oh, we won't talk about it. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. White, Commissioner White. I looked at the state budget today, and it appears to me that the Mental Health and Substance Abuse Department is getting roughly 4% of our state appropriations. $8 billion, give or take, you're getting what, 340? A little uh, higher now. 380, 380 uh, per year. So what, what could you do with 5% of the state budget? <laughs> so <laughs> let's just be honest about this conversation. One of the things that Wayne said during my intro, which I'm incredibly proud of, is that I can be relentless about the need to fund mental health and substance abuse. And I see Representative Blanchett back there. I didn't recognize her earlier. And I see Representative LaPax made it in. And Senator Haste already knows, because he became my favorite office this year. <laughs> um, 
we, the reason that investing in mental health and substance abuse services matters is because we can stretch our dollars for evidence-based services that will cut down costs in the foster care system, in the criminal justice system, put people back to work, reduce homelessness. All of those negative things we want to see changed about our state, it kind of has two threads that run through them. One is poverty, talking earlier about the disparate zip codes. One is poverty, the other is trauma, untreated mental illness, and addiction. And so my role as the Commissioner of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services is to advocate for that piece of it in particular. And so when we look at what can happen, if you look at what we talked about in our, in our budget this year and made another step on is the investment in what's called the Smart on Crime Initiative. Smart on Crime is a series of about 17 evidence-based programs where we partner with law enforcement, where we partner with providers, where we work in local communities to make sure that we have prevention, early intervention, treatment, diversion, and reintegration services for people to keep them away from the criminal justice system or those who've slipped through to help them transition back to the community and not be the next person most likely to go right back into the criminal justice system. That's a huge area where we can make a difference. And I will say, and the, the legislature has made steps, when we pr proposed that initiative initially, which by the way was endorsed by the Association of Chiefs of Police, the Sheriff's Association, and the District Attorney's Council in the state of Oklahoma, first time we've ever seen a proposal endorsed in one agency by outside entities in that way. Originally it was about $115 million. We now are down to, we were down this year to only needing 90 million more, and with the investment this year, led by the governor and the legislature, we got an additional 10 million, and we're now down to only needing 80 million more, which is nowhere near 5% of the state budget. And we believe we would be able to equip communities with the tools they need. But that's, that's just the criminal justice diversion. I think what the first lady talked about that was so important, that I, that I mentioned earlier, is the need to invest in trauma-informed care and homes, in communities, and in schools. It can't just be one or it doesn't work. It's all of those. And we are currently working really hard to determine what does that look like. I will tell you the price tag in Oklahoma City for what we think we need for the Oklahoma City uh, Embrace OKC initiative that I talked about with the Oklahoma City partnership with the Oklahoma City Public Schools and the foundation and led by the Oklahoma City Chamber is about $5 million a year for the Oklahoma City Public Schools. That actually, I know that sounds like a huge number, right? And it's a huge number to us as individuals, but when you think about over 60,000 children in the Oklahoma City school system, and we think we, the school system leading that effort has determined, along with us as the experts in prevention and intervention and treatment, $5 million a year might be able to address this issue for all Oklahoma City school children. That's not unattainable. That is not unattainable, particularly when we have champions at a new level than we've ever had before working on these issues. So what would it look like? A totally different Oklahoma. When we invest in trauma, in early intervention and treatment, we don't have to start having these calls. Um, the reason that Dr. Clancy and that I get these calls on Fridays desperate for beds is because we, for some people, they, no matter what happens, at some point they may end up in an acute mental health crisis that can be treated, and treated even better soon. But for many people, it's the lack of services in the community and identification early on that leads to the crisis. 
So let's think about writing on another initiative in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, that again, celebrating those successes. Oklahoma State University's Health Science Center under the leadership of Dr. Casey Shrum and Project ECHO. If you're not familiar with Project ECHO, what Project ECHO is doing, and just so you know, the way that that's funded is OSU and our agency partnered together to direct grant funds into this initiative that we were able to receive to say they're going to have an expert, a psychiatrist, an addiction psychiatrist, and other folks in those specialties on the end of one video conference with primary care physicians across the state and other health professionals, particularly in rural Oklahoma, once a week in a collaborative talking about how to address mental illness and addiction. And I'm making this very simplistic, but this is really an important point. Because if primary care physicians could treat early on depression, early on anxiety, there is a huge number of people, not everyone, some people will develop severe and persistent mental illness for reasons we don't completely understand, even with early intervention. But for those we can, they may never need a bed. And now we have bed availability for those people who need it. It's those kinds of working together and collaborations that I think should give us hope that these are things we can do. And it's not with large amounts of money. One of the things I say frequently when it comes to money over the last year, and you may have seen this printed in a, a sister paper, but I'd be happy for it to be in this paper's headline. <laughs> As we decided in the state of Oklahoma a few years ago, and we were right about this, that our roads and bridges were so dilapidated in this state, we were on the bottom of the list for bridge and road safety. We had some pretty awful crises happen in our state, if we remember. It was so bad that the leadership at that time in the legislature and in the governor's office said we are going to do a multi-million dollar, multi-year investment in roads and bridges. And what that's going to do is it's allow us to bring our roads and bridges up to a national standard. And then from there, we're going to always make sure we invest to maintain. We won't have to do, we're going to do several years of giant investment, and then after that, we just need to put in a little to maintain every year. And our legislature has been so successful at it that if you haven't seen, in the last few months a report came out, we actually have some of the best roads and bridges now in the nation. Not all done yet. I know that you're thinking of that road near you, but it's not done yet. <laughs> I'm not saying it all done But we have made massive progress, massive progress in that area. And we won't have to do these giant investments into perpetuity. We just are going to have to keep it up. I would submit to you that just as important to Oklahoma's economy and to our families is brains. And brains ought to be as important in Oklahoma as asphalt, and it is time to make that system. Do you remember? I wrote that editorial. Uh, yeah, I did. I, did. I, did. I wrote that editorial. Let's make mental health like the roads. So yeah. we're, we're all familiar. We're what the headline? Anyone who reads across the world knows that uh, that we uh, we have the highest incarceration state uh, rate in the nation. Higher percentage of our population in, in, in behind bars than anywhere else in the, in the world. Not just United States, China, Cuba, anywhere. Uh, we also are all well familiar with the fact that the largest mental health facility in Northeastern Oklahoma is the Tulsa Jail. Less well known is the fact that about 36% of the prisoners in the Oklahoma Corrections Department are on psychotropic drugs. 
So bring all that together for me, Dr. Clancy. Do we, do we have an over-incarceration problem or do we have an under-treatment problem? I would go back to Terry's point of, of if you think about healthcare as a spectrum, from, from prevention to early intervention to primary care to acute outpatient intervention to, to hospitalization, part of our problem is everything is weighted toward the crisis side of things. And America, America's healthcare system is designed to save the day. We wait until you're almost dead, and then we do extraordinary things and bring you back to life. We don't. And if you look at how things are paid for in, in healthcare in America, prevention gets very little attention and very little money. When you, you go see a doctor to prevent hypertension. What in the world is he going to bill as far as that goes? He wants to bill for hypertension. And, and it's the same thing with we are we are applying so much at that save the day, or save somebody uh, level. The same with, um, sometimes there isn't beds available, the best place to put them is, is in the jail, as a pathway of least, least resistance sometimes as well. But instead, there's, there's nothing earlier on in, in the system. Um, early on in life, I was a packed psychiatrist, and, and so every day, those are called programs of assertive community treatment, and you have a team of 10 taking care of 100 individuals, most of the time with severe mental illness. Um, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, we see them every day, every day. We see them, make sure they take their medications, have nursing, have uh, occupational therapy. After a year in that program, we went from 60 days a year in the hospital to four. And after two years in the program, we went to zero days in a, a per year in, for those individuals. And we saved $25,000 per patient per year. Yeah. Many of those individuals, before we started the PAC program, were in and out of jail as much as they were in and out of um, psychiatric hospital as well. So it, it just the system is weighted way too much toward one end. It's an incredibly important point because, you know, Americans are terrified of, of, of mental illness. We, we see people wandering around downtown talking to, to people who aren't there, uh, uh, oftentimes shouting at people who aren't there. Uh, and you know, we, we see stereotypes on television. Uh, that, you know, we're, we're running short on time here, but as a clinician, I think it's important to hear from, from, from you that, that, by and large, these are treatable, solvable problems. Oh, very much so. I mean, even, even the most severe mental illnesses are, are very treatable, and, and Martin can say the same thing. I mean, 90% you know, of depressions we can get significantly better, and, and schizophrenia, um, um, we, we haven't been able to cure it yet, but boy, we can do a whole lot better. I mean, than we used to be able to do bipolar disorder. Haven't been able to cure it yet, but a whole lot better, a whole lot better than before. I completely agree. I mean, one of the things that we have to think about is that uh, we have effective treatments, whether they're pharmacological or behavioral, um, they uh, that can absolutely improve the condition, whether it's in depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders. Um, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Um, these the, the, these scenes that you see in the street is sort of like somebody having a heart attack on the street. And what we what we should be doing, and I think this is very important that this issue was raised, is to work towards preventing these uh, extreme situations and really identifying uh, what can we do to prevent these extreme um, psychoses and. and other exacerbations. We have effective treatments. We can do better, but we have effective treatments. 
we, we have better models too than, than so if, if I got to answer the 5% question rather than 4%, what I, what I would add as well is a lot more PAC teams. We have three PAC teams in Tulsa. We really need seven for what our population says. Mike has been able to put uh, teams together of law enforcement with mental health and uh, Tulsa Fire Department with mental health workers and, and when the fire truck shows up, there's a mental health worker with that fireman right away. And it didn't, they, it's done wonders. Um, through a very creative program with Blue Cross Blue Shield, Community Care, Medicare, and Medicaid, we now have mental health workers in the primary care offices in 62 different clinics in eastern Oklahoma. And what we've seen with the, having the mental health worker in the primary care office is that overall cost to care for those individuals that are in that program, 7% less because they're staying out of the hospital. And then uh, Family and Children's has a program called uh, First Episode. Uh, clinic. So if anybody has their first episode of, of a psychosis, oftentimes leading to a bipolar disorder or, or a schizophrenia, if you treat that episode very well the first time, if you treat the first depression very well, you actually protect the brain from further episodes as well. It, it almost says that each episode is toxic to the brain and makes it the next one worse and makes the cycle happen even more and more. But if you can if, treat that first depression well, treat that first psychosis well, you actually are protecting that brain much farther than life. Dr. Paulus, do we know what's going on in people's brains? That, uh, that what we've, been, we've been able to show, I mean, this is actually a really important uh, issue. Psychiatric diseases are brain diseases. Uh, I think that's very important to, uh, to state that. We see that the brain, the function of the brain, changes significantly when you experience depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder. We understand better, we don't understand fully or far, but we understand better which parts of the brain are important for uh, producing these symptoms. And so what we're looking at uh, is how can we directly affect these brain areas, uh, sometimes using uh, what's called functional brain imaging, uh, to modulate, to self-regulate these areas. But we do know that, uh, that we have a fairly good understanding uh, on an on a overall uh, level which parts of the brain are important for generating these symptoms. Well, let me ask you a, a variant on the 4% on the and 5% question. What are we likely to see? What's, what's on the foreseeable horizon of, 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 of mental health science? Are, are we going to see a, a vaccine for schizophrenia? Are we going to see a... Well, people have been, I mean, so people have been looking at, the vaccine idea has actually been looked at in terms of substance use disorder, um, and people are still working on that. It's a, it's substance, it, in fact, actually, substance use is actually a more, it's even a more tricky problem. So, for example, we, it, it, for the opiate uh, use disorder, we have uh, partial agonist treatments, right? We have methadone, we have buprenorphine, and these are effective and important treatments. But for something like methamphetamine, there currently is no approved uh, pharmacological treatment for methamphetamine uh, use disorder. We are completely relying on behavioral interventions, which are important and which help, but we have nothing. Um, so uh, so there's a, there, we have a long way to go for these, uh, for these uh, disorders. What I would say is, and I think that that was raised too, is if we can reach out and identify uh, those, either whether it's kids, whether it's adults, because you know, new onset psychotic uh, illness can occur throughout the life cycle. We know that there are certain times throughout the life when it's more likely that you're going to see new onset uh, diseases. So for example, if you're an adolescent, during adolescence we know that uh, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia are more likely to occur for the first time. But we know that there are um, several times in your life 
when there's a higher risk of developing depression. So for example, um, around uh, entering college, as I talked about before, but also when you retire, um, uh, when you age, when you have a medical illness. The, uh, these are other crises, when you lose a loved one, these are other crises that we know in people who, have, who are susceptible to uh, depression, depression can develop. So when we, if we can identify these individuals earlier through school program, through uh, other programs, and prevent uh, the occurrence of these disorders or mitigate the, uh, the impact of this uh, disorder, I think that would go a long way. There's, there's um, two new treatments. Uh, uh, one is out and one is about to be out that changed the game entirely as far as treating depression. The first is called Persandalone. It is an IV infusion for postpartum depression that takes it away. It's, a, it, it's over um, 60 hours, and it has to be monitored very carefully, but it is a, a hormone that, that in, um, mimics uh, the hormones that are lost when a, a mother delivers that is the cause of the postpartum depression. Well, if you can do this infusion over 60 hours, what would have been maybe a year's worth of depression is gone, is gone. The second is a, um, a old drug that used to be one of abuse, but is now looking like it's gonna be very promising for treatment resistant depression, it's called ketamine. Uh, the, the street name for it is Kit Kat and Kat and K and such. This in a nasal spray can relieve depression within 15 minutes. Is it, it's a, so there is extraordinary things coming as, as the science really helps um, us understand and the, the technologies help um, some really exciting things. But listen, ladies and gentlemen, help, help me thank you, our, our, our guests and our panelists. All right, as we wrap up, I just want to encourage all of you to Learn more about how you can get involved in advocating for people affected by mental illness, substance use, and homelessness. One of the first steps is visiting our website, mhaok.org. We have lots of information that is a wonderful gateway to becoming a mental health advocate. And if you are already a well-established advocate in the community, thank you. And I think this panel emphasizes that we're making a difference, you know? It can sometimes be frustrating that we're at the bottom for mental health funding, but we're at the top for incarceration and rates of mental illness, but we can't give up. Keep fighting. Okay, thank you, and let's all go do good things. Thank you.